Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and open to Luke chapter 24? Luke chapter 24, our text is verse 13 through verse 35, which if you have picked up one of the Red Bibles, Luke 24, 13 is on page 885. 885. And one more time, if you're able, I want to invite you to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Luke 24, verse 13, I'll read down through verse 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Would you remain standing as we pray once more? <clears throat> Father, I pray this morning that you and all that you have purposed for your people may accomplish that this morning. Father, we know that you have prepared good works before the foundation of the world, that we would walk in them. I pray that you would use our time this morning, considering your word, to bring about that reality of what you have planned. 
may we leave from this place and find ourselves walking in faithful obedience to Christ. May we mind ourselves more trusting and obeying your word, finding strength from it in times of need. Father, would you do all of this, we ask, for our good and your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In our minds, we may immediately move from the ladies coming to that empty tomb on Sunday morning to Peter boldly preaching on the day of Pentecost as if all those things kind of happen immediately, as if you have an empty tomb and a believing people and an emboldened testimony that Christ is risen without doubts, without questions, without uh, any of those kinds of things, but we actually know that's not the case. In fact, if you remember just from a couple of weeks ago, we remember when the ladies came back and reported that they had come to an empty tomb, that Jesus' body wasn't there, that the angels had announced to them that he had risen, even their report was met with unbelief. Uh, The the, the apostles, the disciples, uh, supposed their words sounded like an idle tale. Matthew even tells us at the end of his gospel, remember when when Jesus delivers to give the Great Commission? As he's there, we said that they gathered on the mountain. Some worshiped and some doubted. When you come to our text this morning, Luke chapter 24, verse 13, we're now later in the day after the empty two has been discovered, after the ladies have reported their testimony, and yet still we find two men on their way to Emmaus, who are despairing in unbelief. In fact, it feels like at this point, things are going from bad to worse. It can almost feel like the church is breaking up before it begins. Luke gives us a scene where two men are on their way to Emmaus. We know the name of one of the men. His name is Cleopas. My guess is the reason we know his name and not the other is because when Luke was doing his research, my guess is he's the one that he interviewed, Cleopas. But these two men are on their way to Emmaus, and I think more important than the fact that one of them is named Cleopas or even that they're heading to Emmaus is where they're leaving. They're leaving Jerusalem. You see, we've read ahead, so we know where the story goes. We know that in God's redeeming plan, not only was Jesus going to live and suffer and die and be raised, but he was going to pour out his spirit on the day of Pentecost as his church gathered in Jerusalem. And that they were going to be his faithful witnesses in Jerusalem and then take that testimony out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And yet here are two men in their unbelief, in their despair, leaving the city. It's kind of like I imagine one of these times where you have an election and everybody gathers at campaign headquarters ready to party and enjoy the night away and celebrate their victory, only they find out they lost the election. I've never known what that would be like afterwards, but my guess is everybody just kind of walks out with their head hanging down with despair, right? Good grief, they're disillusioned. They thought it was going to go one way and it was going to go the other. It's exactly how these men are at this point when Jesus meets them. And yet... By the end of our text, everything has turned around. They're back in Jerusalem. They believe that Jesus has risen from the grave. 
They're boldly testifying that he is the risen Christ. So what happens? What, what takes them from their despair and disillusionment to their belief and bold proclamation? Well, what happens is Jesus intervenes. He appears to them in this moment so that he brings them back to Jerusalem and begins to strengthen his church as they await the day of Pentecost. So what I want to do this morning is just walk through the details of the text, and then I want to highlight a few things, especially as we look at Jesus' words to these two men. I want to highlight a few things about the nature of the Bible itself. Now, that's a bit interesting that in this text where we have Jesus' resurrection appearance, the first one here mentioned in Luke's gospel, that the focus, I think, that Luke wants us to have is on the Bible. Now, I'll give you reasons why I think that is in a second. But first, let's just walk through the details of the text so that we know what's going on. These two men, as we've said, they're on the way to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're having a conversation with one another about all of their despair. They had believed at one point that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But once he died, being handed over uh, to evil men who crucified him, they now had begun despairing. Even the ladies report that the tomb was empty, that the angels appeared to them, that they announced that Jesus was risen, apparently didn't measure, didn't register with them. They were still walking in their unbelief. And so as they're walking along, Jesus appears. Now, I don't mean he, he appears miraculously. He's actually going to vanish later miraculously. If he appeared miraculously, I assume their conversation would have been about that. Where'd you come from, right? But no, no, he appears to them, probably on some side road or something. He comes walking along, and it seems that he begins to accompany them, at least close enough that he can hear what they're talking about. But Jesus asked them, what is it that you're talking about? They stand there looking sad for a second, and finally, they express uh, their incredulous feeling. Are you serious? They ask him, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem? Are you the only visitor to this area who has no idea what's transpired in these past few days concerning Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus, go ahead, tell me what it is, as if he's ignorant of these things. The men go on, the chief uh, point of their testimony of where they are is in verses 19 through 24. They say to Jesus, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, who, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. This is their report to Jesus. We've, we've, we saw him die. We, yeah, this is a report of him raised, but they still don't believe. And Jesus' first response to them, if their first response to him is to be incredulous, I can't believe you don't know this, his first response to them is to rebuke them in their unbelief. He tells them that they're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he begins taking Moses and all the prophets, that is all the Old Testament. He walks through the Old Testament scriptures showing those things that point to him, though all the things that concern him. So that by the time Jesus finishes this and it looks like he's going to go, they would like to hear some more from him. So Jesus looks like he's going to go on, and they compel him. Hey, just stay the night with us. Listen, it's getting late. It's getting dark. You, you don't want to go and travel any farther. Stay with us here. 
He does. And though they invite Jesus for dinner, it looks like he begins to be the one hosting. He takes some bread, he blesses it, he breaks it. And at the moment he breaks it, though their eyes, by the Spirit's power, had been concealed from recognizing him, at this moment the veil is lifted. And they recognize in that moment as he blesses the bread and breaks it and gives it to them, they recognize in that moment that they're having dinner with a risen Christ, that he had been the one walking with them that whole time. He had been the one instructing them. And yet at the moment they recognize him, he vanishes. And so what they do Though the day is already late, they've acknowledged that to Jesus. It's too late to travel. They themselves get up and go. And they head back to Jerusalem, meeting with the 11, meeting with the others, and testifying, listen, here's what happened. Jesus has appeared to us. They find out from the 11, he's also appeared to Peter. And now you have a believing community who are seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in his risen state again and again. Again, it's a fascinating story perhaps one we're familiar with. But I think, as I mentioned, what may be most fascinating is especially if we focus ourselves on Jesus' words. What Jesus says to them, the focus of this text becomes Scripture, the nature of the Bible, the nature of God's Word. And again, if you, if you think about it, maybe just on its face, this feels weird to us. Why is it that in Luke's text, where he first shows us the appearance of the risen Christ, that the focus of that text is on the Bible. I think the reason for us, and this is just a guess on my part, but it makes good sense to me. Remember, and it's been for us several, several, several weeks and months ago. Remember when we began Luke's gospel? Luke opened his gospel, writing to an individual named Theophilus, and he says, Oh, Theophilus, I've written these things to you so that you may have certainty concerning the things you believe. And now as we end his gospel, which he has written so that Theophilus and so that you and so that I might have certainty concerning the things that we believe, the things that we have been taught, Luke ends focusing us on the nature of the Bible. And I think the reason is because our certainty concerning Jesus being the Christ, concerning him living and dying and being raised on the third day, our certainty isn't rooted in you and I being able to have a firsthand eyewitness experience of these things. No matter how much we may want to, we're never going to teleport back into the past and look at Jesus hanging on that cross at Calvary. We're never going to be able to teleport into the past and be with those ladies on the Easter Sunday morning and look at the empty tomb. But our certainty is not rooted in being able to be eyewitnesses of these things. Our certainty is rooted in the Word of God and what it testifies to us. And so I think that's why Luke, in this gospel, he's written so that his reader might have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught at the last chapter, at the last section of his gospel, focuses us on the nature of the Bible itself and what it provides for us. And so this morning, I then just want to say uh, four things, four truths concerning the nature of the Bible, what it teaches, its role in our lives, etc. And the first category I want to note is simply the necessity and sufficiency of God's Word in our lives. The necessity and sufficiency of God's Word in our lives. I think what's most fascinating, perhaps, about this text is that when Jesus meets these men, 
and clearly they don't believe. Jesus doesn't then, after they say, look, the women came back, the angels bear witness, but, but they're despairing, they don't believe, they thought he was the Christ, they don't think it anymore. Jesus amazingly doesn't say, hey, hey, men, stop for a second. I want to give you secret new information that's never been proclaimed. I, I'm, I'm going to teach you everything that you could not have known because this is totally new information. That's not what he does. What Jesus does in that moment is he says to them, you should have known these things. You should have known that the Christ was going to suffer and die. You should have known that he was going to be raised, right? You should have known all of these things were going to take place because they were recorded in the prophets. They were recorded in Moses and the prophets, which is just a reference to the whole of the Old Testament. So what Jesus does is he says, listen, if you want to know the redeeming plan of God, I don't have secret news for you. If you want to know the redeeming plan of God, you should have just read your Bibles. You should have just paid attention. He says, you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then concerning Moses, and then taking Moses and all the prophets, he's taught the things concerning himself. In other words, they had all that they needed in the Bible. And they only had half the Bible. Isn't this a reminder to us about the necessity and sufficiency of God's word in our lives as well? You see, you and I, I think, can be prone to always wanting more, always wanting perhaps what we don't have. I wish I had more insight. I wish I had more knowledge. I wish I had more understanding. I wish I had more wisdom. And longing for those things in and of itself is not bad. In fact, the book of James instructs us, if you lack wisdom, pray. Ask God to give you wisdom, and he gives it generously and not begrudgingly. But how foolish of it is, us, is it of us to spend our whole lives longing for more insight and longing for more knowledge and longing for more wisdom while ignoring this book? while ignoring this book, which the Lord gives us as that which is necessary, he even says it's, it's like bread to us. Just as we earnestly and eagerly desire bread, we need bread for our physical survival, so we need God's word in the same way. It's that absolutely necessary for us, and it is sufficient for all that we need in terms of life and godliness. There is nothing that God commands you to do that you're expected to do that you cannot find in his word. It is sufficient for us. Now, I'll say, I, I was out last week. I, I preached at another church in town, local Presbyterian church, and uh, let's be faithful in praying for those brothers and sisters, Covenant Presbyterian, just faithfully proclaiming the gospel there. But anytime you're out in another setting, I think it calls you to examine why we do what we do, because what they do is just a little different on Sunday mornings, and so it got me to thinking as I was driving back over here, I snuck back in, heard the last part of Aaron's sermon, I missed the Chuck Norris stuff and all that, um, but I came back for the last part of Aaron's sermon, and, and I was able to fellowship with you all at the end of Sunday, but as I was driving back, it just got me reflecting on the nature of, of why we do what we do, and and I note this several times, but I just want to make sure we don't miss it. Brothers and sisters, our entire Sunday morning service is built upon communicating the necessity and sufficiency of God's Word. We start by reading the Bible. 
we're going to end this morning with one of our pastors quoting to you a benediction, 1 Peter 5, 10 through 11. In the middle, we read the Bible. Right before the sermon, we read the Bible. And then we take an extended time in the service to focus on looking at what the Bible says so that we may teach it. We're trying to communicate, even the way we arrange our services every Sunday morning, the necessity and sufficiency of the Bible. In fact, if you visit with us for, say, a couple of months, one thing you're going to find is there are going to be a few men who stand behind this pulpit on a Sunday morning in a two-month time and preach the Bible. Why? For one, because we want to send the message that this church is not built upon any one man. It is built upon the Word of God. It does not matter who stands here and preaches. What matters is that the Word of God is being proclaimed. And this is what we long for and pray for, and we, we build this kind of understanding into the very nature of what we do. But our prayer for you and for me is that this becomes rooted in our hearts and that we become a people who not only focus on the Word of God on Sunday mornings, but understand its necessity and sufficiency in our lives as well so that we read it, so that we pray it regularly, so that we memorize it and meditate on it and obey God's Word May we this morning be reminded of the necessity and the sufficiency of God's word in our lives as well. Second, we see the centrality of Jesus in the Bible. The centrality of Jesus in the Bible. Interestingly, as Jesus responds to these men, he says in verse 27, Luke tells us, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Isn't that amazing? When, when he, again, when he says Moses and all the prophets, he just means the whole Testament. So Jesus in that moment begins walking through the Old Testament, telling them about how all of the Old Testament is about him. And my guess is that your first response to this text that my first response to this text is to say something like, man, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have been on that journey. I wish I could have heard that conversation. I wish I could have heard all the places that Jesus was saying, okay, now consider this, now consider this, now consider that. But my guess is we know. You see, <clears throat> it would be pretty far-fetched that these two men, Cleopas and the other guy, who's unnamed, run back to Jerusalem, gather with the 11, tell them everything, and then they say, uh, what then did Jesus tell you when he told you from Moses and all the prophets the things concerning himself? And they're like, well, I'm not sure, sure I want to share that, right? Of course not. They have to run back and said, let us tell you what we have heard. So they shared these things. Not only that, but Jesus told us that the spirits who would come as he departs and indwell his people would lead them into all truth and would bring to their remembrance all that he had taught them. What you see on the day of Pentecost, then, is Peter, I think, giving us an example of what Jesus may have shared here. Remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter doesn't stand up and say, like Jesus here, he doesn't say, I have news for you that you have never heard before. None of us anticipated Jesus being raised from the dead. Not one place would you ever think that this would happen. No, instead, what does he do? He says, this was written about in Psalm 16. 
When, when David said, you will not let your holy one see corruption, he wasn't talking about himself. Go look at his tomb. He corrupt. No, no, no. He was speaking of the Christ. Look at the text that, that Dave read earlier in our service, Acts 3, 17 to 26. It's just filled with the apostles saying, remember Moses said this? That was about Jesus. Remember the prophet said this? That was about Jesus. Think of Philip when he encounters the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. And he asks him, is the prophet speaking about himself or somebody else? And Philip says he's speaking about Jesus. How in the world does he know that? My guess is, in part, is because these men came back and said, let us tell you. And word begins circulate. So, in one sense, I don't think we've missed out on any of this conversation. Just read your New Testament, and you're going to see it again and again and again explicitly taught. And, again, I want to say more. I think we're in a more blessed place than these men. Yes, they get to hear this brief conversation with Jesus. We get to see the product of what the Spirit did when, one, as I mentioned, Jesus said in, that, in John 14, 26, he will bring to your remembrance all that I've taught you. Have you ever thought about that for a second? I mean, how in the world did these men who wrote the New Testament remember, for example, the Sermon on the Mount? Lily gives me a really hard time about my wedding messages because they're basically the same all the time. And I one day pressed back a bit and said, fine, give me my wedding message. She struggled a bit. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> now think about that. She knows my wedding message is the same. She's heard it a bunch of times. I did eight weddings one summer. I think she was there for every one of them. And she struggled to do that. How in the world did Matthew sit down? And then Matthew's 5 through 7, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 go, you know what, I remember Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is. It's because the Spirit, Jesus said, would bring to remembrance all that I've taught you. Not only that, he would lead you into all truth. So there were things that Jesus didn't teach them when he was here walking around with them that the Spirit gave them insight into later. More and more and more truth. And these men then took the teaching of Jesus, even this teaching of Jesus in this text, showing how the Bible is all about Jesus, and the Spirit led them into even more truth so that they could record in the New Testament these things showing us how Jesus was central in all that God had done and how he fulfills the scriptures and recorded them for us, and we have them. Do you then see how hypocritical it is of you and me if we say, oh my goodness, I wish I could have been in that conversation with Jesus and those two men on the way to Emmaus, and then we neglect reading the Bible where that very conversation and more is given? Brothers and sisters, how blessed are we? So again, I want to encourage us, let's not neglect our Bibles. And if you're new to the Bible, maybe you're a new believer, I want to encourage you just to tackle it this way. I've said before, the Bible is like a mystery novel that's really well written. So that a mystery novel gives all kinds of hints along the way. Now, maybe you have trouble seeing them on your first read. But then you get to the end. You get to the last chapter, and all of a sudden the answer is given. It's this individual, or that individual, or whatever, right? The issue is solved. And then what do you do? The second you see that, you go, 
oh my goodness, I should have seen it all over the place. Remember, remember that hint? Remember that clue? And so what you do if the mystery novel is really good, movie, whatever it is, is you take it, you close it, turn it over, and you start again. Because you go, now that I know the answer, let me see how I can see the beauty of all of these hints developing along the way. That's how you can read your Bible. If you're a new believer, just start with the New Testament. And read and see how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Bible's talked about. Understand the nature of who he is and what he has done for us. Living and dying and being raised. And then, go back and start at the beginning and read the Old Testament. And you will see hint after hint and clue after clue that point in that direction. Without the Old Testament and the categories it gives us, we would never understand who Jesus is. But the whole of the Bible testifies to him. The whole of the Bible is about Jesus. And so again, let's make sure we read our Bibles, know it well, and see the glory of Jesus Christ in every page. Which brings us to our third point, a little bit differently, but Jesus also notes the blinding nature of unbelief. The blinding nature of unbelief. You see, as glorious as the pages of the Bible are testifying to Jesus, we can be blinded to him in our unbelief. This is precisely what Jesus says to them. They're unbelieving. And Jesus says to them in verse 25, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, Jesus doesn't say to these two men, I get it. I, I get why you don't see that in the Old Testament. I get that, that you didn't hear Moses read in the synagogue and the prophets read, and, and instantly you realized it was me, Jesus, that the whole thing was talking about. I get it. It's really hard to see. He doesn't say that. He says, the problem is you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That is, it's there, and it's clearly seen. But the reason it's not seen by you is because you're in unbelief. Paul will later say the same thing about the unbelieving Jew. He will talk about a veil in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, a veil lying over their hearts. So maybe he says, listen to this day, Moses is read in the synagogues, and it's all about Jesus. And they don't see it. Why? Because a veil lies over their heart. A veil is blinding them from seeing the glory of Christ. And then Paul says this, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, if you're an unbeliever this morning, it may well be, if you've read the Bible, if you've attended church services, you may have had the Bible read, and you may be saying to yourself, I don't know what all the excitement's about. I just don't see anything glorious here at all. And if that's the case, that's less of a testimony about the Bible and more of a testimony about you. Because if you fail to believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you do not believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then though you read the Bible as glorious as it is, and you see these people around you move to worship God, there's a veil over your heart that's blinding you from seeing and loving the glory of this book. But that veil can be removed. The good news is that though you and I are sinners under the wrath of God, who will one day pour out his wrath on everyone who has not bowed the knee to his son, Jesus Christ, in repentance and faith. 
Though you are under God's wrath, the good news is that God's made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins, reconciled to him, and be given eternal life. And he's done that by sending his son. God the son took on flesh. God the son became a human, born of the virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit in her womb. Jesus of Nazareth was born the God-man. And as the God-man, he lived a perfectly obedient life to his father. As the God-man who never did anything wrong, he died an excruciating death on a cross. Dying like a criminal, but he died not for anything he had done wrong, for he had done no sin. But he died to pay for the sins for as many as us, of us who would believe in him. And then God raised him from the dead on the third day. So if you hear that message and you find your heart stirring, it may be because the Spirit of God is beginning to remove that veil that lies over your heart. Because it's through that message I just shared with you, that gospel message, the Bible says it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And so this morning, I want to plead with you. If you, begin, you just, if you begin to see the glory of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one, that you would repent of your sins and place your faith in him. And then tell your neighbor, or tell one of us, so that you can then make public your profession of faith by being baptized. And then gather with the saints and begin reading. But I tell you, this Bible will forever remain veiled to you unless you believe. The blinding nature of unbelief. And let me give us a warning as believers as well. Because we may think that this only applies to those who are out there. I'll remind you of something I mentioned before. D.A. Carson said when he taught at Trinity, anytime a student would come and say, Dr. Carson, I'm beginning to doubt the truthfulness or the authority of the Bible. Dr. Car Don Carson would say, who are you sleeping with? Now, it wasn't his way of saying, one can never doubt the Bible unless they're walking in sexual fornication. It is his way of saying, sin has a hardening and blinding and unbelieving effect in our hearts. And if we give ourselves over to sin, we may soon find ourselves blinded to the glory of Christ in the Bible. And let me also say it positively. I don't know anyone who has regularly exposed themselves to the Bible, regularly read and memorized and meditated and prayed this book to God day after day after day, who has found themselves then running from him almost, if not without exception, that they first abandon this book and then they abandon Christ. And so let us be a people who again know the word and fight sin so that we might always have our eyes open to the glory of Christ. And this brings us to our last point, the necessity of suffering in the scripture. The necessity of suffering in the scripture. Interestingly, the reason these men struggle to believe the, that Jesus is the Messiah is because he suffered and died at the hands of his enemies. You see, when they're giving Jesus an update on all the things that had happened, note that they say in verse 19, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. In other words, they were not ignorant of his miracles. 
they had seen him raise the dead, make the lame walk, the deaf hear, cast out demons. They had known that the fact that he had multiplied fish and bread, that he walked on water, that he taught with authority, that he outsmarted his enemies every time they were in front of him. So what is it about there, about Jesus' resume, that suggests to them he isn't the Messiah? Did they think he multiplied fish and bread? I wish he had, on another occasion, multiplied carrots or something, right? Did, did they see that he, he's raised a couple people from the dead? They wish there were more? They made the lame walk? They wish they, wish they had done more, right? Made, made people grow their legs back or something? You know, they have no problems with his miracles. They understand those miracles are a pretty good resume for suggesting you're the Messiah. Their problem is not that they do not believe he did these miracles. Their problem is that they have no category of the Messiah dying. You see, they knew their Bibles well enough to know that the Messiah would be the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, who would come and conquer that he would judge his enemies, that he would save his people, that he would deliver them and make all things right. They were looking for a one who would come and be a conquering king who would live forever so that he might reign forever as the promised son of David. And so when they see Jesus die on the cross, they just have no category for the Messiah suffering. And this is Jesus' very point when he begins to teach them. Note what he says in verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Oh, well, what did they speak? Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He said, if you had believed what the prophets spoke, then you would have understood it's not simply that the Messiah will live forever, though he does. But it's also that he will not enter into his glory until he first suffers. Had they read Isaiah 53, for example, I mean, Jesus could have gone on. I mean, Genesis 3.15, the very first promise of salvation in the Bible, that Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. We're also told, and the serpent will bruise his heel. Or think about Psalm 22. David's life, as Aaron mentioned last week, David's life is a picture, a type of the Christ who would come. David can write in Psalm 22 about, about being forsaken of God, but it's Jesus who ultimately fulfills that when from the cross he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mentioned Isaiah 53, but we could go on with text after text after text that teaches that Jesus would suffer. They had a problem with this order that Jesus' suffering must come before his glory. And I think the risk for us is not so much that. We understand now where we are in redemptive history. We know that Jesus did suffer and die, but then he was raised and he's reigning at God's right hand. I think our problem with this truth is that sometimes we question this same reality in our own lives. In other words, we are not better than our master. And if the path for him was that he would walk through suffering before entering into glory, the path is the same for us as well. And there are many professing believers who struggle with that as well. Again, perhaps we don't struggle seeing it in Jesus, but we do struggle seeing it with ourselves. But when Jesus called us to follow him, he does not say, come follow me and enter into glory. Come follow me and inherit the kingdom. He says, take up your cross 
deny yourself and follow me. Yes, we will one day know glory. Yes, we will one day inherit the kingdom. But in this age, we're going to know what it is to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And again, as I mentioned, we have all kinds of believe, professing believers in our world who will, who will push against this. The prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, is all about saying, if we're united with Jesus and he is the king, then we are children of the king and should not suffer. Our answer to that is, have you read your Bibles? But it's not just the prosperity gospel, preachers who say these kinds of things. Anybody who thinks that all that we're going to experience in eternity, all of that is already going to come true now, is somebody who walks in the same reality. Think about what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said to them in 1 Corinthians 4, 8, are you already kings? Have you already become rich? He says, I wish you were, that we might reign with you. In other words, what they were doing was they, were, they believed that everything that awaited them in eternity should be true with them now. And Paul says, you may think you're kings. Well, I get news for you about himself. He says, we're the scum of the earth. We are the refuse of the world. In other words, if you think you're already there, then you're not with us here. What Paul was saying to them was suffering must come before glory. And I think we can all be prone to forgetting that Jesus has called us to take up our cross and follow him as well. One of the ways, perhaps, we show this most clearly, one of the ways I've shown it in my own life. So I remember one point just lamenting to the Lord, and, and my three-step prayer went like this. God, I did what, you thought, what I thought you wanted me to do. That is, I obeyed. Now, I'm really suffering. Therefore, number three, what went wrong? And it may be that you pray prayers like that too. But if so, do you realize the theology that suggests? If I obey, things should turn out well and without suffering. Brothers and sisters, that is as off base as the prosperity preachers. Jesus says the very thing that caused them to disbelieve he was the Messiah, that suffering would come before glory, I think is the same reality we need to understand about the one who says about ourselves, for he calls us to follow him, saying, deny yourself, take up your own cross, and follow me. Now, yes, one day we will enter into glory. I remember Tom, several years ago, preaching a sermon. And in the sermon, he talked about some friends he knew who had gone on the mission field. And in the sermon, he says, and just recently, that couple flew back on the plane. They were coming back. And among that couple, he said, the man on that plane ride was sitting in some seat on the plane while his wife's body was in a wooden box somewhere on that plane coming home. And then Tom, as he's so good at doing, and me not as well repeating his story, says, after getting us all to that moment where we feel emotionally gripped by the terrible situation here, says, and it's all worth it because she's going to be raised. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. Let us follow the one who has suffered, who suffered and was raised. Let us follow him in obedience despite all the suffering it might mean for us. Because like him, we too will be raised and will enter into his glory.
So as we look at this section of Luke 24, 13 through 35, let us commit this morning to be a people who will know and love and read and treasure God's word and obey it, even when it calls us to follow our suffering Savior, because like him, we'll be raised and one day reign alongside of him over a new heavens and a new earth. And so as we look forward to that day, we're going to come to the table. The table is, a, is an opportunity for us really to look backwards and forwards. We look backwards remembering what Jesus had done for us, that he shed his blood, that he gave his body, but it also look forward to the time when Jesus Christ returns and we'll eat with him. In other words, every Sunday morning is a little dress rehearsal and the wedding day's coming. And we eat a little piece of bread, we drink a little juice every Sunday longing for the day when we will eat a meal fit for the wedding of a king. And so this morning we're going to come to the table and as we do publicly testify once more, we've heard the call of Christ and his word and our answer is yes and amen. If you're not a believer, I want to encourage you uh, not to eat of this bread and this cup because you would be testifying that you believe when actually you don't, but I do want to encourage you to believe and again, tell your neighbor Tell me so that we might baptize you. If you are a believer in good standing with a gospel-preaching church, you profess your faith in baptism, we're going to invite you to come to the table this morning. We're going to take a moment of silence. that will let the musicians come forward, the pastors get in place, and then each section will just dismiss row after row. Coming around, you'll take one stack of two cups, bottom one with bread, the top one with juice. Return to your row to the inside. Once we all have them, we'll eat and we'll drink together. There will also be a pastor for that section and then after we've all taken, after we've all sat down, we'll eat and drink together and praise the Lord in the singing of his oxology. So let's take a moment of silence this morning as we prepare to come to the table.